No lad who has liberty for the first time and 20 guineas in his pocket is very sad. And Barry rode towards Dublin, thinking not so much of the kind mother left alone and of the home behind him, but of tomorrow and all the wonders it would bring. Hello, and welcome to Film Church Radio, the podcast that treats cinema as a religion. It's Sunday. I'm Brandon. I'm Lewis. And we're here to talk about movies. Each week, Lewis and I alternate picking a film for both of us to watch and discuss. But this week, we're continuing our 2023 director retrospective on Stanley Kubrick. We have been watching chronologically the films of Kubrick and discussing them in detail each week. And this week, we're discussing Barry Lyndon from 1975, starring Ryan O'Neill. This week, we welcome Zach back. Hello. Uh, Hello. Welcome back to the show. Zach is uh, is here to discuss a film with us this week. Uh, he is a longtime guest of the show and pops up every now and again. Um, he recently told me that this is possibly his favorite Kubrick film, um, but this is the last Kubrick film that Lewis and I have not seen until now. Uh, so I thought it would be an interesting discussion to bring two newbies and one oldie onto the show Um, and then Zach has not seen Eyes Wide Shut so I think we're going to try to have him back for our final Kubrick episode so that we can kind of do the the contrast of you know flip reverse it on your baby yeah exactly because you guys have seen Eyes Wide Shut yes yeah not in a while and each of you rank it as your favorite Kubrick film so <laughs> I don't we'll think get so, but it. we'll see when we get there. Yeah. We'll see. We'll find out. We will find out. Um, before we get on with the show, I just want to take a second to say thanks to everybody who's been listening. Uh, it's been awesome to have you and grow this congregation. Um, please keep spreading the word, the holy word of Film Church, and uh, be sure to hit the bell to be notified when we have new episodes every Sunday. Follow us on this, all the social media channels at Film Church Radio. Check out our YouTube channel where we have extra special content on there. And um, yeah, thanks for being here. Um, it's time for our trailer section. Normally, Lewis and I will talk about other movies we've been watching this week other than you know our main presentation for the day. But since we just had the Oscars a week ago... Um, and Lewis and I haven't had a chance to talk about them yet. I think we're just going to turn this section into an Oscars talk section with the three of us. Um, if you've been listening to us for a year now, last year Lewis and I had a whole episode where we just talked about our pre- Oscar predictions. Um, and then we like kind of filmed, did like an Instagram live thing during the Oscars, if you want to check out that from last year. And this year we just couldn't make it work. Um, so if you're looking for that, you're not going to find it. You're in the right place. If you want to hear us talk about the Oscars. <laughs> like the carrot in front of the donkey. Uh, the 
big winner this year was Everything Everywhere All at Once, of course. And um, as well, if you want to hear Lewis and I's first reactions from when that movie came out, uh, you can go back and listen to our episode, our Sergio Leone episode, part two, A Fistful of Dollars, where in the trailer section of that, we talk about having just seen Everything Everywhere All at Once. It's about eight minutes and 40 seconds into that episode. Um, and I think at that time, I mean, that was back in April. Sure. We we could not have predicted that this movie would have would would have gone on to win all the awards of, at the Oscars. It, it in our minds it would have been amazing, but we just it it did not seem like the kind of film that would just sweep at the Oscars. Yeah. No, agreed. I think that um, like definitely looking back on last year, it was the film of the year. I don't think any other film kind of had that same like movement as Everything Everywhere All at Once did um, when it came out and then just continued to grow and grow and grow. Um, it was used as a poster boy, I think, for the the anti-Marvel crowd um, as well. You know, the fact that it came out so close to Doctor um, Strange and had a similar theme. Um, yeah, I, and- I didn't even remember that that came out last year. Yeah. <laughs> um and it's just yeah, I mean it was just a really like just a heartwarming show to see all these people win after such a long time. You know, especially with the cast that they had, it's um yeah. It was so great. Um and yeah, I think well deserved. Yeah. Yeah, it was just it was kind of crazy just to to see it over the year kind of build up. Because I remember when we, we went and saw it, I saw it three times in theaters within the span of a couple of weeks um, mm-hmm. because we saw it together. I was like, that was amazing. And then I had to um, tell other people to go see it and bring them yeah. with me. And then I did it. Yeah, I did that two times. You know, brought, like was like, let's all go see this. Like, y'all have to see this. And the people I was telling about the movie, telling the movie about um, didn't know anything about it. So it was like, you know, I think a lot of people did the same thing I did and just like kept putting the word out there. Like this is a must see. Um, yeah. But how did you feel about it, Zach? I know you weren't, I know it, Oh, you didn't love it as much <laughs> no. as Lewis and I, uh, but so, I don't think you hated it. Either. No, no, I, I did like the film. Um, I think my, I think the, the last time that we talked about it on the podcast, which I don't think it was that same episode. I think maybe, I came on in a later episode and you had maybe just yeah. seen it again and you guys yeah. asked me about my thoughts and I think I said, it was okay. <laughs> With, mm-hmm. And um, uh, my, my, I still, I've still only seen it once. So I'll, uh, uh, and it's been, I saw it on its original theatrical run. So it's been a while. Yeah. <clears throat> but my response to this winning was, I was very pleased because, um, it's a very original and creative film and the last couple of best picture winners or the last couple of big Oscar movies, the last couple of years have basically been very boring movies. I won't name names, but uh, uh, (laughs) I, I, you know, for me, it was just exciting to see like an original indie creative film win and be received so warmly i think um yeah 
and because I'm used, you're used to watching the Oscars and kind of maybe, I mean, maybe you're not. I don't know. For me, I oftentimes find myself rolling my eyes at winners, and this year I wasn't. I was I was pleased that something very very original and creative was dominating the awards and and uh, especially with the acting wins. If you count the three acting wins for that film, and as well as Brendan Fraser for The Whale, I was kind of happy just that I don't think any of those actors are ever going to be nominated again. Mm. Um, not as a swipe against their uh, abilities, but I don't have so much faith in Hollywood to provide Oscar-worthy roles for these actors, even if they continue. Obviously, they're going to continue working. But um, either that or they do have Oscar-worthy roles. I'm not sure I have faith in the Academy of recognizing them again. You know, and kind of like, well, you got yours. We got you already. It's okay. Um, So I was just kind of happy because I don't really see any of them winning again, much less being nominated again. So that was really satisfying, just kind of knowing, okay, this was... To me, in my head, I was kind of operating like this is probably their one chance. And I, I was actually just watching a video earlier with like Kihi Kwan and um, Brendan Fraser talking about because they were both an Encino man. And yeah. um, <laughs> uh, Brendan Fraser kind of said uh, in an interview that both of them probably acted those roles like as if they weren't going to get another chance. So, um, mm, you know, yeah, I mean, like at least he was kind like, of speaking for himself. He was kind of like, I'm never going to get this a role like this again. I'm going to put everything into it, you know? Yeah. And probably, poss- quite possibly the same for Kihi Kwan. So um, they put so much in, uh, into those performances, and I think that they all deserved their wins. Um and I'm happy because I, t- I don't think they're going to get that chance again. <laughs> yeah. You know, or, or they're, I don't know if they're going to be recognized, even if they get yeah. further chances to um, to win Oscars. So it was kind of it was exciting from that kind of standpoint, I think, too. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, it was. Uh, man, I mean, when I first saw everything everywhere all at once, it was so amazing to see uh, Ki Hui Kwan back yeah um after all of these years because you know we're in our 30s we grew up watching him in indiana jones and the goonies and um have wondered where he's been yeah um and to see him not only in just like a fun movie Mm -hmm. but also like to see his real acting chops come yeah. out in that movie and then to be recognized for it. Yeah. I mean, um, there's just, there, there's not a, like, it, <laughs> there's not a better feeling to watch that guy <laughs> in all of his acceptance speeches over this award yeah. season. <laughs> but, and, <laughs> just, like, he's so <laughs> grateful and like, and, and humble and positive And it's, it's just, it's a great thing to watch. I'm going to rewatch the movie soon. Um, but I seem to remember there's like a part where 
like he he after the one of the first times he kind of changes into an alternate version of himself the more like alpha version of himself i think there's like a part mm -hmm. where he like looks at michelle yo and winks and then like puts his glasses back on and becomes nerdy himself again yeah i could be misremembering it but yeah it's yeah <laughs> there there is a moment where it's like an acknowledgement from his character on the kind of like the switching of the characters that's the switching of the versions of himself that it, it's like that moment alone is, is just like oh my god this guy is a freaking great actor you know yeah and uh because mm -hmm. uh, he's of course wonderful in it and i was very happy for michelle yo too because like i think she should have gotten nominated for crouching tiger and dragon which got tons of oscar nominations won four oscars didn't get a single acting nomination um, yeah. and you look at her filmography and between Crouching Tiger and this, she's a, an actor who is always working, but I don't think she, she does not get roles like the, her role in Crouching Tiger or her role in this very yeah. often. And mm -hmm. so yeah. it's very exciting that she, one, got the opportunity to play this part and two, got recognized for it. Because yeah. I don't know if a meaty role like this is going to come her way again. She's got to keep acting, of course, and she'll always be great. Yeah. <laughs> but but I don't know if another Oscar nomination is in her future, just because I don't have that kind of faith in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in love with Michelle Yeoh since I was six. So um, Sunday was a was a big night for me. She was. Yeah. Um, she was Waylin in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, and um, yeah, I saw that when I was six and loved her. So it was it was great. Um, it was great to see. But I know exactly what you mean. I mean, that's what I thought about Fraser, especially was I just I don't know where he's going to go from here in terms of performance. You know, I think yeah. there's a there's a story that Hugh Jackman was telling about um, working on his latest film, The Sun, and he had like a one scene with Anthony Hopkins. And Hopkins was just so happy to be working. He only had like one day of shooting mm -hmm. that he showed up before anybody else. He was helping like the lighting crew set up. Mm -hmm. Like he just wanted to be on set because mm -hmm. the the roles were drying up. And he won Best Actor what three years ago? Yeah, it was very recent. Yeah, yeah. And and it's just you know, especially when you reach a certain age, it just it's like okay, it's going to be you know side characters or. I don't know, indie films, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So if the Oscars are going to continue to hopefully keep pulling from a wider pool, then that's very good. And that's what we should hope for. Yeah. Well, what did you guys think of the show? I thought it was good. I mean, overall, I thought that, you know, it was, they scaled back, but we got all the awards. I didn't like, I know that we kind of were texting a little bit. I didn't like that we had to, we continually have to keep cutting speeches off to make jokes. Yeah. Um, but I understand, you know, people want, people are not necessarily watching for the technical awards. Yeah. So, which is a shame. I just, I felt like the production was just so much better than it has been yeah. the last few years, especially last year. I mean, besides, you know, the incident that happened, but, um, 
Yeah, I remember last year, you, you know, because we watched the Oscars together, came over to your house and stuff, and mm. we had talked about how they have just gone so far from the Oscars being like this fancy, special, you know, dress-up night to just being kind of like a joke and yeah. not taking itself seriously and just, you know, trying to appease like... Everyone. Like yeah, it's like the the trend has gone to like pranks and insults. Yeah. And but this year it really felt like they turned it turned it back around and were like, okay, no, this is a this is a classy night that everybody's waiting for and like people's dreams are coming true and I mean cuz that's the thing, that's the thing you're there for. You're there to watch people people's dreams come true yeah <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. i mean and it's like if you're just making fun of it and like oh yeah your your dream is actually stupid and silly you know then it's just like well what why the hell are we doing this um, yeah and that's yeah. what it felt like last year but this year it really it really felt special again well last year they were like the hosts were making fun of the films yeah, like, yeah. And, and not in a you know good natured uh uh you know uh, Billy Crystal popping up in inserting himself into scenes yeah. and doing, <laughs> you know, bits or whatever. But th- there was like a joke about not finishing the pow- watching the power of the dog or something like that, you know? Yeah. And it, yeah. It, it's just, it was just such a, it just felt like the people Icky. writing the show yeah. hated the movies that were there. <laughs> yeah. Probably yeah. hated movies in general, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, we're tv people yeah i think it just it just helps that you get a host that has hosted things before and that's that's what they do for a job yeah you know it it seems tied to the jokes are probably a little bit he's probably got a team of writers jimmy kimmel that you know he brings across with him to help um whereas when it's comedians you know not necessarily i don't want to lump everyone in together but um you know when they're trying they're just trying to be edgy and that's where and that's what we got last year was these terrible jokes that were more shocking than funny and it just kind of before anything else happened it just put a full dampener on it and and plus there was no gimmicks this year which i liked i'm I'm thank i hate it when they do like oh we've got an audience that think they're going to the cinema but we're going to bring them into the oscars and don't, don't do this like stop it's not about that please stop so I'm th- I'm very thankful that none of that happened, and the ratings yeah. were high. So hopefully yeah. this continues. Yeah, Kim, I mean yeah. Kimmel Kimmel also has like a sort of. I mean, he's hosted the Oscars before, but even beyond that, he has like, I think he used to do like a like a live show yeah. after the Oscars before he was hosting the Oscars because his show is on the same network, I believe. So he would do like a live show immediately afterwards at there's years ago um and and like the week after the oscars i think already like i think guillermo del toro was on his show this week and like brought his oscar with him like that because he because kimmel's in la so like i think that that was like something that other winners have done in the past like the week after the oscars i think like lady gaga the year she won she came on his show as a guest and like had her Oscar with her, you know, and that's kind yeah. of like a, actually, uh, you know, who did, uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, who's the basketball player who died? I'm um, Kobe Bryant. 
Yeah. I feel like a fool for forgetting his name. Kobe Bryant, when he won an Academy Award for a short animated yeah. film. And I remember him coming on to Kimmel's show, like, like in the week after. And they, they, they made a little, like, Lakers jersey for his Oscar that they stuck on there, <laughs> you know? So, like, so he, he has yeah. this relationship kind of with the Oscars, even beyond yeah. having been a host of it, um, that makes him a really good fit for it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, it's kind of. I mean, he's the new Billy Crystal, isn't he? It's like when yeah someone you need to rely on. Let's let's get him out, um, yeah. and that's fine by me. You know, he he does a good job. I think his jokes are funny enough to to like you know push it a little bit and mm-hmm. you know tongue in cheek, but it's not offensive to anybody. Yeah, yeah, which is the fine line that we need to tread. Yeah. Well. Um... Anything else about the Oscars that you guys loved? Any winners? Any losers? Any? Very happy that Pinocchio won Best Animated Feature. I think it should have been nominated for Best Picture as well, personally. Mm. Um, But yeah, that was that was very heartwarming because it was. um, Yeah, I mean, Guillermo doing exactly what he does. Yeah. Uh, Um. Obviously, there are only so many Best Picture slots and Best Director slots. Um. But I was happy that rrr won yeah uh i I mean i don't think i've talked about it on your guys show but i know i think i told you guys the weekend i saw that movie which was like a year ago i think i texted you guys and said i just saw i mean i was i saw it like opening weekend in the theater i was the only person in the theater but (laughs) during that song that that won the oscar natu natu is the name of the song or Nacho Nacho, if you watch the Hindi version on Netflix, unfortunately, there's some very <laughs> weird, complicated things involving the Indian film industry and, and language and multiple languages. Um, but uh, like, I mean, I was like doing like a sort of chaplain tap dance with my feet the whole time. <laughs> I, I didn't get up and dance, but my feet were moving <laughs> during that whole scene. And uh, so I was very happy that that song made it that 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 the that that film got popular enough here that the 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 it got enough momentum to get it to that place. I would have loved to have seen that film be recognized as like a best picture or a best directing nominee. Um, yeah. I knew I know that that was a. a, a a pipe dream, but yeah, um, I was just happy that the momentum for its U.S. release pushed it towards actually getting nominated and winning. So yeah, I mean their dance performance in the show was incredible. Well, you should see the movie. I was actually yeah. disappointed that the actors from the film do not did not perform. They were not asked to perform. I think yeah. Uh, but they said they were ready <laughs> to uh. do it, um, which is fine though, because I think that that it, it that's also a song that if you listen to it and even just watching that performance, it's one thing, but it's a song that works with what's happening on screen in the film, most right. most of all. So um, uh, that was also a thing that sort of gave me hope that it would win because it wasn't just like an end credit song. It was like, this is actually a pivotal moment in the film, <laughs> you right, know? Yeah. And that is often, I think, helpful for a song when it's being, as like a, 
a few many years ago. It's like maybe it's like twenty years ago now. When uh, it's hard out here for a pimp, won the Oscar for best original song uh, for Hustle and Flow. And I was reading an interview with the years ago with the director of that film, who said, "I knew that we were going to win the Oscar." He didn't write the song, but he's like, "I knew the song was going to win when it got nominated because." that movie shows the writing of the song. Like like mm. the characters write the song in the movie and you see it from its gestation of like a couple of notes on a keyboard to a full-blown song. And he was like, none of the other movies, the other movies that's just, it's a song in the credits. This is like fundamental to the film. He's like, I knew that it was going to win. So I had high hopes for that, for Natsu Natsu winning just because it was like this is more than just a song at, at the end, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Brandon? What? Um... I mean, I was just ready for Ki Hui Kwan to win. <laughs> yeah. I was just, and and it, it was like right at the beginning. I was just, yeah. I was just ready to see it. I was rooting for that guy, and like, yeah, I've been watching all of his other wins and acceptance speeches and it just it just warms my heart yeah and just like yeah. to see him go up there and win and just i mean it was just amazing yeah um it's i'm a little torn because it's like uh i love spielberg um yeah but i but i mean he's he's got his awards you know he's I mean, got he's, three oscars <laughs> Yeah, I was I was actually looking today. I was like, you know, the Daniels in one night they got as many Oscars mm-hmm. as Spielberg. <laughs> I was like, that is yeah. crazy. Yeah. I mean, what a crazy night for those guys. Yeah, I think that with Spielberg, it just kind of they just went the wrong direction. You know, Michelle Williams's performance is really good, but in my opinion, Paul Dano steals the show. You know, mm. um, yeah, and maybe maybe supporting actor. You know, but then again, like you said, it's a tough category. Every category I feel was tough. You know, I was really pulling um, for Paul Mescal from After Sun to to win, but I knew, mm-hmm. it, you know, it was kind of like he was like with Bill Nye, unfortunately, as like the outsiders um, in that group. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, that was a big win seeing him get nominated because After mm-hmm. Sun was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, and he's only going on to do bigger and better things now. Yeah, um, exactly. Better in terms of, I would say, budget and like exposure. Not better as in better films. Just want to clarify. No, you're talking about he's going to be in Gladiator 2. Yeah, yeah. Better <laughs> exposure. Maybe yeah. not better than After Sun. We'll see. <laughs> um, well, cool. A, well, good, a good show. Happy yeah. with it. Yeah. We'll see what happens next year. I'm curious. I feel like, yeah, the, the COVID years are behind us a bit. I feel like the last few years have been very sparse. In, yeah. You know, strange. every category has been like, okay, well, uh, if you have to. You know, whereas this year I was like, especially with Best Picture, you know, I would have been happy with with 95% of the options. I should say 90%. Um, 90% of the options there, so. Yeah. Yeah, this was a year where there were a lot of movies that I'm like, oh, I wish that that had gotten in. But I like wasn't really upset with anything. Everything that got nominated was good. 
Yeah, and also yeah. like it, mostly everything that got nominated was you know had a big theatrical release yeah. and was popular. Mm-hmm. You know, people went to see these movies. Yeah, um, it wasn't like you know last year where people were like, "What is Coda? Where do I see that?" Right. <laughs> and your other big winner, your non-theatrical winner, was a Netflix film. You know, All Quiet on the Western mm-hmm. Front, which is also getting a very like high-end home video release so they're kind of trying to legitimize it you know it's not just yeah. a netflix movie you can buy it in 4k in a couple of weeks yeah um, all right well so I, I think i think that's it for oscar talk well i don't know we the film that we're going to discuss tonight won four oscars <laughs> that's true more than uh, any other Kubrick film. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. Uh, folks, it is time for our feature presentation. Barry Lyndon, 1975. At long last, Redmond Barry became a gentleman, and that was his tragedy. An Irish rogue uses his cunning and wit to work his way up the social classes of the 18th century England, transforming himself from the humble Redmond Barry into the noble Barry Lyndon. Um, First time watch for me, first time watch for Lewis, several watches for Zach, possibly his favorite Kubrick film. I will say that for me personally, this is a really good movie, right? It looks amazing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, engaging i mean for three hours it's like incredibly engaging yeah you know it's not it doesn't like all the reviews from back then are like it's long and boring but it's not you know it's it's an exciting movie to watch um but i've only watched it one time Mm -hmm. and when i compare it to other kubrick films it's hard for me to be like this is incredible um but just as a movie, it is incredible. It is a really good movie. I don't think it's going to be necessarily my favorite Kubrick film. But again, I, you know, this is a movie I'm definitely going to go back to several times, and that might change, you know. Um, so that's kind of where where I'm sitting at. How was uh, how was your watch, Lewis? Yeah, I mean, this has always been the Kubrick film that stuck out a little bit for me. It's been. <clears throat> it's never felt like it belongs in his filmography for someone that hasn't seen it. You know, compared to the other films around it, you know, The Shining is next, obviously, and then we've just had 2001 and Clockwork Orange. It seems such a shift. Um, but after watching it, it 100% fits in with the themes of what Kubrick's been doing. Maybe not like the look, but um, he's been dealing with anti-heroes and, you know, the, these people that we're not supposed to like as the focal character now for since his career started pretty much, you know, this is kind of what he's drawn to. Um, and, and after reading about it, I think what, what you sit in awe of very similar to 2001 is the technical developments of this film that really pushed the, the format forward. It, I always think of Hitchcock obviously, cause he's such an influence on me um, and how he would do films like rope that were like a, 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 just a a test for himself. He would be like, I want to shoot this in light, like it was a stage play continuous. And for this, I just feel like Kubrick's like, 
I'm gonna do natural light, and this is what, and no one can stop me. You know, oh, we yeah. can't, we haven't got a lens that can pick up, you know, the flickering of candles. I'm gonna invent one because this is exactly what I want on camera. Um, yeah. it's insane. I mean, <laughs> just the technical, like the technic, the technical side of this film is incredible, and I think it's so yeah. seamless when you're watching it, it just blows your mind. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, to just kind of talking about the technical achievements of the film. Well, I think a lot of Kubrick movies are kind of fit this category of, well, I mean, I guess, you know, every movie kind of falls into this category in one way or another, where you couldn't make this today. Um, but the, the thing about what you couldn't do is that I don't think any filmmaker, even the most, you know, uh, the filmmaker with the access today very few filmmakers, I guess someone like James Cameron has this freedom. Filmmakers don't have the freedom of time to make a film like this anymore, which is that Kubrick had a lot of time to make all of his films, obviously. Um, and uh, I did, for the first time, delve into the special features on the Criterion disc for this movie recently. I've had it for a long time, and I've watched the movie on it a couple of times but I had never watched any of <clears throat> special features. And so they they do talk about like the, the, the lens in particular, right. Was a NASA lens. That, yes. That yeah. Did not fit a normal film camera. And so, so they had to send Stanley's personal cameras off to the camera company to, for them to basically rebuild his cameras and build new parts so that this lens would fit in. And, and that took several months that they had, that he was just able to say, you know, we're not filming yet. We're still in pre-production. I've got six months for you to build a, a brand new film gate for the camera, you know, so that yeah. this lens fits in it and is able to capture that. And it gets even more stressful when you hear about the shooting and how they, the focus pullers on these things did the focus puller had this whole setup where he had to, they, they would film or tape the actor in a setup from the side and he would measure, he would watch the footage to measure like, okay, not of actual scenes, but like rehearsals to measure like, okay, Ryan O'Neill moves his head forward about uh, two inches in this take. So then he would kind of have to guess while he's focus pulling that he was getting it right when, because any any slight movement, the, the picture would go out of focus because of how sensitive these lenses were. Um, and, and just hearing about the, the shooting with the cameras makes every shot feel like a miracle that it came out. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, we know that Kubrick shoots many takes. So we also know, we also know that what we're seeing in the film is only, you know, every take is only one of at least a dozen, you know, um, that were possibly that two were dozen right. or four yeah. dozen. <laughs> yeah. And the aspect of that as well, especially by filming by candlelight, is the continuity of the candles. Um, yeah. yeah. 
the budget just <laughs> rose and rose and rose because they just had to keep replacing the candles. For like, you know, there's right. these chandeliers above the characters in some of these right. um, scenes that have got 30 candles plus, right. you know. Um, and again, I'm sure that they probably had to be changed nearly every scene, you know, yeah. or at least, you know, every half an hour or whatever. Yes. Um, and Kubrick, who is very famous for going on and on and on <laughs> and on, right. um, just ballooned. The, the budget just ballooned, you know. Well, yeah. Um, and like the cameras were also, the uh, candles were also very smoky. So yeah, they, they talked about like crew members would get lightheaded because the oxygen was being sucked out of the rooms because of these candles. <laughs> oh my god! Um, and so between takes, you know, they'd have to open up, you know, open up the room yeah. so so that the air could get in and, and people could breathe again because these yeah. things were just smoking up the place. And then of course, wax is melting. So it's it's not just an issue of say oh, well, the candle lengths between shots are this and this, but cleaning up the candle wax and replacing them, uh, uh, you know, from that point of view of the mess that they're making in on the sets, which were not sets, they were real locations, yeah. um, just, it stressed me out. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it had to be absolute... Pins and needles, yeah, the entire time yeah. trying to. But I mean, it, they shot for three hundred days. Yes, like yeah, it's it took it took a. I mean, they took their time. It's like yeah, you know, and, and the houses they were they were using, especially like around the Christmas period, they had to take. I think it was like a two month break because mm-hmm. the families wanted to use the houses for Christmas. Yeah, so they were just like, okay, we're done for two months, and then they had to come back and continue after that. Right. Um. Well, the, and the good thing is, though, for the uh, not for the candlelit scenes, but daylight scenes, they were able to actually use just um, like actual film lights if they needed them, because they would film those rooms were situated in such a way that with these big windows, you know, and angled in such a way. So these rooms were designed to be lit by the sun during the day. You know, if you were living in this house you kept your windows open because that was your source of light during the daytime so they were able to continue shooting into the night because i think especially when they were shooting in like the winter when the uh the days were getting shorter so they'd have natural light lighting those interior scenes but then the sun would go down so they were able to use like arc lights outside the windows just makes it look like sunlight coming in so there were some, some there was some semblance of what felt like a like just a regular old movie set, yeah. <laughs> little bits and pieces of it, yeah. But most but of it getting... is very different from any other set you you'll ever be on. Yeah, we're getting more yeah. and more removed from um, the Spartacus days as mm-hmm. we go along. It's just becoming like the furthest thing away from Hollywood yeah. that he can get. You know, at this point. Um, and it, like obviously, a lot of it's filmed in England and, and Ireland and um, you know Scotland and places around there. Um, and you can, and it's just got a real feel for someone that's just in love with the place. Yeah, you know these the the oh my god, some of the compositions of the like mm-hmm. the, the shots outside are just absolutely gorgeous. 
you know, with the rolling hills and it just looks incredible. Um, and I, I, I text you guys cause I just watched the searches, um, like the day before watching Barry Lyndon. And I was just like, I'm just blown away by the cinematography in both of these films because it's just, you yeah. know, that the, the sense of space in both of them is incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this movie has a lot of those, like, kind of like all these like perfect things coming together, right? Like, yeah. Um, the they talked about with the with regards to like the production design that originally the plan was they were going to shoot all in England so that they were like never more than half an hour away from Stanley Kubrick's home, yeah. and and that became it quickly became clear that that was not a realistic. Um, uh, plan so then they shifted over to ireland right and so uh that's where you get these you know amazing landscapes where uh so much of the cinematography of this is lifted from paintings um mm. i think it was yeah. uh we talked about one painter who um <coughs> hogarth uh william hogarth who is a painter who is actually like very cinematic in his the way he painted like he would do like series of of paintings like um one was like the rakes uh this oh a, a rake's progress so it would be like uh they sort of said it's like almost retroactively he was a very cinematic painter before cinema existed because he would do these paintings that if, if you look at all six or whatever it was you got a story, you got a progression of, of a narrative yeah. and, and Kubrick is like taking those and actually making them cinematic, but you've got, okay, you've got actual landscapes where I can recreate or not necessarily recreate, but imitate these, the look of these paintings just by photographing the actual land out here. You know, that's to say mm -hmm. nothing of the actual setups, like in, you know, in the houses where characters are, position certain ways you know to sort of imitate these group paintings that uh of the uh, i guess 18th century british yeah. and paintings but um it, like it, yeah. it's the perfect storm of things coming together to make the movie look so good you know is like yeah. oh we, we've got the landscape <laughs> we just need yeah. to find the spot where we can film it and make it look yeah. like this painting yeah, I think um, Gay Hamilton, who who plays the cousin early on, um, mm -hmm. talks a little bit. She she was saying that Kubrick was, you know, obviously he was meticulous in making sure that he got the right shot, but he really struggled with how to like open the shot, how to kind of the composition for the beginning. Mm. Once he'd had that, he could like move with it, yeah. and especially with this film, he would refer to the the paintings you were talking about, Zach, mm -hmm. as like starting points, jumping off. Like that's right. how he would position the characters. Mm before yeah. they started filming like so everything had this feel of like i don't know like you know just <laughs> like the the history that we're familiar with through paintings i guess mm -hmm. it's like how can we be you know we we can relate to it because we've seen these um these stances and and how people are like holding themselves through these paintings before mm -hmm. um which is such an interesting way to go about making a historical you know a period film Yes. Yeah. Um, because I think uh, even the production designer, Ken Adam, who worked with Kubrick on Strangelove 
Um, mm. And he designed the B-52 bomber and the war room. And after working with him on Strangelove, he said, I'm never working with Stanley Kubrick again. <laughs> he, hated the, he hated the experience. He almost yeah. said yes to 2001. He was offered the job in 2001. And he almost, or he thought about it, but when he learned that Kubrick had already been working with NASA for a year, <laughs> he was like, I'm not going to be able to be creative on this. So it took some finagling for Kubrick to get him to agree to do this film. And the strange thing is, is that not that, not that he, he had his work cut out for him, but he felt like as far as production design goes, they were using existing rooms like interiors that right. really you know certain modifications were made like i think at the beginning you see uh barry like the um uh the the, the house that barry and his mother lived in which is like it has a stone like sort of foundation like the, the outer part of stone but it's like a thatched roof and and he built the thatched roof like he it was just an empty shell of a home that he he made it look like this nice little like Irish cottage. Um, but a, a lot of the work was just finding the locations, finding the rooms that that looked like these paintings and saying, okay, here it is. This is where we're going to shoot, you know. Um, and of course he wins an Oscar for it. So <laughs> he was actually yeah. very, very adamant about trying to convince Stanley to shoot on sound stages. And Stanley Kubrick said no. This is all location shooting. So that was another thing where they, because he was used to working on sound stages. He was used to, right. to having full control of designing a set, you know, yeah. and he did not have that on this. He, cause he worked on the early Bond films, right? Which are very much like these big soundstage kind of yes. set pieces. You yeah, know, worked, you think worked, of the Fort Knox and stuff. Right. He worked on a lot of Bond films and there's one that they talked about in the special features there where, and, and you would know this better than I do, Louis, because I don't remember. Which, whichever one came out in 77, there's like a submarine-like set. Spy Love Me. It's probably that, yeah. Where he had built this set and could not quite figure out the lighting. And he called Stanley Kubrick, even though he was had sworn <laughs> he would never work with him again. They, they maintained a very good friendship. And he calls him up and is like, I need, I need you to come into L Street or wherever it was. And yeah. just look at this and help me with this. And Kubrick was like, no, people are going to see me. And he's like, well, go in on Sunday. No one will be there. Wear a coat and dark glasses. And so he went in and Kubrick actually helped him figure out like where the lights should have been in this bond. Wow. So uh, they, wow. they, as far as I know, they maintained a friendship until they died. Both of them died. Yeah. But um, I think Kubrick died before Ken Adam did. But um the, the the working relationship, which is something that appears pretty consistently across Kubrick's filmography, is that yeah. people really like the experience of working with them once or twice. And then yeah. after that, it's like, mm, yeah, I'm not going through that again. I feel yeah. like it's that retrospect thing. We talked about it last week, right, Brandon, with the Clockwork Orange and, and McDowell, where it was like he was put through like so much pain on that film. But now because Kubrick is, you know, the name and because the film is as big as he is, as, as it is, he can kind of, you know, it's it's kind of tainted a little bit. You look back on it now with fondness because it means so much to so many people. Um, yeah. And I think that's probably the case with a lot of people. Like it was probably hell getting this vision to, mm -hmm. the, to the screen. 
Um, but then when you saw the finished product, you were like, okay, it was right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's one of the interesting things about him is that so many there's so many stories of people just kind of thinking that he's crazy. Yeah. And then realizing that he's actually not, you know, that he's just very smart and mm-hmm. knows what he's talking about. Um I remember like an instance um in one of the books I was reading about Kubrick where he he comes in and he just he's able to just look at the light you know the way that the gaffers and the director of photography are lighting a scene and he's like we're two stops off they're Mm -hmm. like no we're not we checked it you know we checked the meters everything's good he's like nope two stops off (laughs) and they check it again and they're like oh he was right (laughs) (laughs) just like his his technical ability and his eye yeah like I mean, I guess that just comes from his photography background and, yeah. and also just his obsession and his, you know, he would, he, I mean, at this point in his career, he's able to just buy stuff and play with it for years. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, he, he, you know, he was able to acquire this lens from NASA, but the cameras that he bought, he actually got from Warner Brothers mm-hmm. um, because he, he did some calling around and found out there was these special um i don't know what kind of they're like they called them bcc cameras and they were some kind of rear projection cameras and they had they were out of use they had they'd switched to like a different type of front projection camera or something Mm -hmm. and he he was like do you guys still have these cameras i just really admire the craftsmanship of them you know and i i would like to have them um and uh and so he was able to get them and then and those are the cameras he ended up using for Barry Lyndon. Mm-hmm. But one of the um technicians at Panavision called up the guy who gave them to Kubrick and was like, What the hell did you do? Like those are some of like the most amazing cameras ever made. Like nobody like I can't remanufacture those. Yeah. Like the craftsmanship in them are like incredible. What the hell did you do? <laughs> <laughs> um but I mean, he was just. I mean, if anybody was gonna have him, it 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 should be Kubrick. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, he put him. He put him to use. If Warner Brothers, yeah, was, exactly. You know, phasing them out. Who cares about the? I mean, obviously, some some <laughs> camera guy right. does, but yeah, you yeah. Know, <laughs> better that better that they get taken and modified to make Barry Lyndon and uh, yeah, you know, just be admired as these artifacts that. Uh, collect dust yeah i mean i know that especially with the lenses the when they were making the film amadeus the director reached out and was like i really loved the look of barry Lyndon. like can you lend us the camera that you used or Mm -hmm. the cameras so that we could you know capture the same kind of effect and kubrick said something on the lines of um i worked hard to make this camera so i'm not going to give it out for free Uh and he didn't relinquish his control over the camera and they were huh. like that was fine that was his prerogative we kind of started looking elsewhere and then you know eventually you know while we're making the film it kind of technology caught up a little bit and we could still capture it but yeah i think he was very protective over his invention and kind of yeah the you know his cameras for this yeah yeah because i mean it's like if if that's what you like using if you can't get it back or they mess it up what yeah. are you gonna do? Yeah. Well, it's you're no longer the next... unique to you, is it? I mean, yeah. Well, you're also delaying the next Kubrick film even longer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lord knows we don't need it longer delays. 
<laughs> um, so while I was watching this film, I got the feeling that Wes Anderson loves this movie. <laughs> yeah, I think some it, of the jokes are very Wes Anderson-y. Yeah. Like the opening, especially um, with the, you know, the maybe, duel. Maybe, and it was like, maybe Wes Anderson's jokes are just very, very Lyndon-esque. That's yes. true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, it got well me th- wait, Lewis, you're about to describe the funniest scene, I think, in any Kubrick movie. <laughs> the yeah, the, uh, the opening door, yeah, where it's describing um, Barry Lyndon's father, and then we get the gunshot, and the narrator says, before he was killed in a duel. <laughs> I, I mean, to me, that just sets the whole tone for the film. And it tells you... Yeah. It, it's, it's everything you need to know about the movie is in that scene. The yeah. the The... the the way the narrator talks in that mm-hmm. and, and uh, um, just it's to me, it's I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that this was going to be a funny movie. That was my, and, and it is a funny movie. Although I don't think I laugh out loud all that much throughout the movie, but it opens with a joke, you know? So I am like going into it with this high spirit when I watch yeah. it of like, <laughs> this is great. Yeah. Well, it got me thinking like, you know, I mean, we've, we've been learning a lot and absorbing a lot by doing this Kubrick deep deep Mm -hmm. dive and watching all his, all of his films chronologically. Um, it, It got me thinking that, that so many of his films are kind of the foundation of so many other films that we watch today. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about that with um, 2001 Space Odyssey and how that was kind of set the tone for the rest of what cinema became yeah. and has become since then. Um, but also I was watching a, an interview with Steven Spielberg recently and he was, he was talking about Clockwork Orange and saying that it was uh, kind of the first punk rock mm. film. Yeah, And there's so many movies like that nowadays that you can kind of see that kind of feel and tone and it's almost its own genre now um and then the same with barry Lyndon. it it got me thinking like oh this is like the foundation for like wes anderson or like the cohen brothers like this kind of comedy this, this like serious comedy yeah um that's still kind of a character study still you know, Oscar worthy and like still has amazing acting and stuff, but has this like narration that just kind of like comical at the same time. Yeah. Cause um, it did, it balances it really well. There's still like, there's still moments in this film where like my mouth is open. Cause I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think like that Coen brothers um, comparison is cause they do that all the time, you know, like mm-hmm. Fargo and burn after reading are two films mm-hmm. that can just have you laugh in one second and have you like, shock the next you know um that's a great comparison yeah i just think it's incredible that i mean i mean i guess that's why you know people call him the greatest is because he literally every movie he's he's not using the same form of storytelling Mm -hmm. yeah like his way of telling a story is different even though like pretty much all of his movies have narration in them it's not the same it's like it you know in a clockwork orange the narrator is the character in yeah. barry Lyndon, it's not you know it's, oh, those, it's very those are originally supposed to be 
Oh, it was? Yeah, the, the novel, which I've never read, but the novel is narrated by Barry. And this maybe is one of the things that attracted Kubrick to it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That um, similar to A Clockwork Orange, which is the novel by Anthony Burgess is narrated by Alex. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lolita is narrated by yeah. Humbert Humbert. You have these very strong characters who are unreliable narrators. And that's how, who Barry is in the, the novel. Um, now, I, uh, there's some... Uh, I, I'm going to say unsubstantiated. I don't know how true these are, but uh, there's there's rumors about what led Kubrick to decide to actually exclude Ryan O'Neill from narrating the film, which was a, uh, an alleged... This is coming, coming from Ryan O'Neill's daughter, who was on set, uh, during the making of the film. She was a 10-year-old girl, Tatum O'Neill. Um, <clears throat> and uh, allegedly, according to her, in her biography, she wrote, or autobiography, wrote that uh, Kubrick's young daughter had a crush on Ryan O'Neill. Because Ryan O'Neill was this was the most popular actor in America at the time yeah. that he made this. Um, and... Uh, allegedly he, he would flirt back with, with his daughter. And when Kubrick caught wind of this, he just became like disgusted with Brian O'Neill and, and grew to dislike him and, uh, and said, well, we'll figure something else out with the narration. Allegedly. <laughs> this is, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but I think it works out for the better because exactly um the indifference of the narrator is to me one of the funniest things about the and one of the best best and funniest things uh, the, the other yeah. funny moment with the narrator for me is the end of part one where he is talking about the the duke of linden or whatever the you know the he's dying yeah. and and it just fades out he doesn't even he's still talking yeah. He's still narrating about this guy and it just fades to black and goes away and cuts him off. <laughs> Intermission. <laughs> like like that's a, a there the the narration is used very very well to the the benefit of the film. So I think it yeah. works out for the better that way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure and it, and it yeah, it makes Kubrick um you know, change his mode of storytelling. Yes not doing the same old thing yeah and again you know this was the script was very loose you know he, he'd mm-hmm. kind of done that before you know 2001 was supposed to be more of a a visual thing and and this was again the same thing it was kind of the script was very loose and and the whole production was kept completely under wraps you know there was nobody allowed on set nobody really knew what he was making the only thing that they were allowed to talk about was that um the the main actors ryan o'neill and marissa um berenson um they were the only two people that you know had been attached to the project um because the the book itself was in public domain Mm -hmm. and kubrick knew that if it was leaked someone would maybe try and like make it before him um so it was kind of just completely kept under wraps and um and yeah he didn't win many fans in the critic circle um throughout this film this is when he started to be labeled a recluse because he wouldn't let anyone on set um and the the tide started to turn a little bit against him you know especially with american critics 
you know, he'd left the US, he'd gone to the UK, he wasn't now allowing them onto the set, he wasn't going to tell them anything about the films he were making. Mm-hmm. Um, so they started to go for him personally a little bit more um, in like, you know, columns and reviews and stuff, which um, I think carries on until, you know, unfortunately until the end now. Yeah. 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 I mean, the movie came out, you know, it it's, it's a great movie looking back on it now, but at the time it came out, I mean, when when was Jaws? Was that the same year? Was that 1974? It's the same year. Yeah, it's the same year. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, the cinema is like changing completely. I mean, you've already had the two Godfathers come out as well. Yeah. Um, the age of the blockbuster is upon the world. Um, and it just, it was not... Uh, it was not the right timing for this film necessarily, you know, for it to like yeah. make money and be successful, you know, with the amount of money they spent on it. Mm-hmm. I think um, it's deceptive I th- though. I think, you know, 75 is a, a big turning point for American cinema, like Jaws, right. Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, I've just pulled up the list here, Shampoo, mm-hmm. um, Rocky Horror Picture Show. And on the outset, I was under the same impression before I watched it. This looks like a stuffy period drama, right? Yeah. And then, you know, and then you actually see it and it's not, you know, that's kind of the setting, but it's not that at all. It's actually, you know, it's it's very in themes about masculinity and, and you know, these men that kind of will go to any means to get ahead and um, society and things like that. Um, but also like when you're coming off of, you know, creating the first punk rock movie and it being very popular amongst young people this is not going to be attractive to them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, hundred percent. I agree with you there. Yeah. Um, and it didn't do very well in America. Yeah. But I mean, I think it did end up making its money back. Right. Uh, I mean, it anyway. was very popular in Europe. Yeah. Um, France and so. England and places like that, you know, and did really good business. Um, Play- yeah. Places where they appreciate the film. Uh uh-huh yeah um yeah i think that you know if they had i think kubrick himself had estimated that it was going to take a lot more money um you know he was very kind of he talked a lot about what profits his film would would be making when he was making films um and this fell a little bit short but if it had had the same business in the u.s as it did everywhere else it would have broke past his um like his um estimate um, well and yeah, it's, just... it's interesting because the the shift to barry linden was partially to avoid what would be a box office bomb in napoleon or a perceived box office bomb because yeah, he was going right. to make a napoleon film um yeah. and it was the russian there, there was a russian version of uh, um war and peace at the end of the 60s that was very successful and then the russian director of that and like I think Dino De Laurentiis and uh, American actors did a Waterloo film that just completely bombed. And so he yeah. was developing Napoleon and, and they were like, mm-hmm. his financial backers were like, we're not making a Napoleon movie. This yeah. is this, this type of movie is gone. So then he makes clockwork orange, but then I, this is obviously he, he considering how self-conscious he was about box office, he he must have must have believed that there was something 
here that would attract people, um, yeah. an audience to, to go see it. And I mean, I think the uh, obviously the film's vindicated, right? Because now it's, this is a movie that in the last 10 or 15 years, I feel like is really the first time I've heard people talk so much about it. Like it's kind yeah. of, uh, I think it is a movie that people brush off when they look at Cooper's filmography, that it doesn't seem as cool as the other ones <clears throat> if you haven't seen it. And so I think it took warming up for a lot of people, time time for people to warm up to this and to realize just how you know interesting and fun and funny and creative and inventive it was. I mean, obviously, people in the film industry recognized it at the time yeah, because it won Oscars. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of films um, that don't have the immediacy. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of, you know, it, it has to kind of drop off to come back yeah. again. You know, two of my favorite films of all time, Vertigo and It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. both didn't do very well, right, right. you know. And then it took, you know, a resurgence for them to be, you know, thought of higher. Um, and I think that you're right there, Zach. I think that, you know, the fact that it's been overlooked for so long, kind of maybe has the defenders a little bit more adamant than they would have been normally. Yeah, yeah. But with that, it's pulled, it's brought the appreciation of it up as well. I don't think it's unfounded. I don't think that this is mm -hmm. anywhere close to the bottom of Kubrick's right. filmography, you know? Um, right. It's just a, yeah, I just, I, I understand both sides. I can see why people didn't go and see it and I can understand why, people should have gone and seen it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the movie won four Oscars. Best yes. Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Score, and then it was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Yes. The last time that Stanley would um, get that trifecta. Mm. He got one one more Oscar nod after that, I think, for Full Metal Jacket's script. But mm. because he because from two thousand one to to this, he's 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 always getting three nods. I think mm. two thousand one's the only one where he doesn't get a picture nomination, but he gets the visual effects nomination. Yeah, um, and one and one. But Strange Love, Clockwork, and this all have picture director screenplay. Wow! So clearly, the Academy has them in them you know their thoughts and yeah. prayers yeah yeah <laughs> at the nomination stage um one of the the things that i really like to see in the trivia was that kubrick used to play uh the soundtracks classical music during the take mm -hmm. during takes to get actors and actresses in a better mood and he was reportedly influenced by sergio leone's once Upon a Time in the West, 1968. Nice. Which, of course, we did a whole series on yeah, Sergio did. Leone. Um, and just the fact that... I mean, I, I feel like I don't hear a lot about Kubrick being influenced by anybody, but just the fact that he was influenced by Sergio Leone, I'm like, <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's not something you would see in the film. You know, that's the interesting thing. It's sort right, of like yeah. the... Uh, yeah. It's it's a like method. adopting the me yeah adopting the method, yeah. but you don't yeah. see the references uh, uh, when you watch the film. Exactly. And yeah, also, he's more interested in like how films are made as opposed to 
recreating them. Yeah, you know, how right. did yeah. like Leonie get this performance? Maybe I should try that on the next film and see how that works. I'm also um, impressed with like um you know, you mentioned at three hours that this movie is not like a bore. And yeah. um uh, you know, I was one of the things I talked about with the editing of this movie was that what like the when they first started editing again another thing that 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 uh, you only can do when you have the amount of time that someone like Stanley Kubrick has <laughs> is that for every take they would they would like lay out all the takes so let's say it was fifteen takes of one line delivery and they would pick the best one. Okay, and then the next the next line or the next shot, they'd pick the best take, and so on and so forth. And they'd keep doing that, and then they would edit that together. And they would like, well, this is terrible because the there was no consistency to the performances because you'd have like take twelve for like the first line read, and then take one for like the next line read, and take twenty for the next line read. Um, and so then they just scrapped that method and managed to still cobble together like cohesive um, sequences. But then I'm also impressed with some of the shots where the editing is basically in the cinematography, like the zoom outs, like, you know, the, or the zoom ins, like that is editing without editing, right? It's like editing without cutting, Mm -hmm. like the, that, that, that they're able to kind of, that, that they were able to figure out on set, that this shot is going to go on for this long and, and it will pace perfectly. And then that they were able to cut this together. I, I don't know. Uh, again, hearing about it, like gave me a migraine. Like I, I would hate <laughs> to be making a movie this way, you know? And yeah. it's so, um, it's, it's amazing that it, that someone as smart as Kubrick or who is also probably surrounded by, people who know this technology so well um, and trust him that they can still figure it out and make a movie that is paced very, very well. I mean, I, this is not a, uh, a a watch checker for me. I, 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 I'm just like sucked into it right away. Even when the intermission comes, I'm like, I'm ready. I I don't want to get up and go to the bathroom. I'm ready for part two, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Yeah, I think that um, what you were saying there—that one of the Kubrick's um, like trademarks, I guess—is kind of honed in this film. Is that zoom out? Oh, is yeah. the focusing on something so far off in the distance, and then we get the very long zoom out, right? Until and we you can have see everything around it. Yes, and you have all this surrounding material, other characters, other things going on, and that continues yeah. to tell the story. And then the the duel at the end of the film. My favorite. It's like. One one of the best, just like that is. If I were teaching film editing, and if I were teaching tension, like that is yeah. a, a sequence. I think I would want to teach. You know, that's the yeah. scene I was alluding to earlier with my mouth just hanging open when they were like, yeah. "Well, you've taken yeah. your shot. Now it's time for Mastillin." It's like, <laughs> yes. oh god, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and like as as far as the character goes, I mean, we've gone with you know Barry through this whole journey, and you know 
at this point you're just kind of like he's kind of a dick oh he's i was gonna say he's such a prick yeah do you (laughs) like barry (laughs) yeah it's like not really but then but at the same time you have all this sympathy for him you know because you followed him throughout his whole journey um and then he he ends up you know doing kind of this noble thing yeah it, it's like Man. the one nice thing that he does, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then also it's like, okay, well, he's got really nothing left to live for. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, I think uh, that, you know, for the first half of the film until the intermission, he's not really like, you know, like villainy. You don't boo and hiss when he's on. He's just pretty ineffective. He just kind of wanders sleazy. around. Yeah, exactly. He just takes the opportunities that are presented to him. Right. It's the mm-hmm. scene in the carriage where he blows the smoke <laughs> back at, at Lady yeah. Linden that you're just like, oh no, I, like you've just kind of gone like, a little too far now for me to like you. you know? yeah. yeah, but I did like the scene where they found him with, I assume it was the nanny <laughs> in the yeah. garden, yeah. and he spots them, <laughs> yeah, and just the very cartoony kind of shock on his face. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that I mean, I'm assuming this is probably taken directly from the novel i don't know but part two is is titled containing an account of the misfortunes and disasters which befell yeah. barry linden and and i remember thinking like when that comes up i was like was the was the first part like about his rise like what what was the title of the first part because uh, like up to that point he's really had nothing but misfortunes and disasters <laughs> <laughs> you know and and yeah. and it's like setting it up as like oh there's more misfortune and disaster in his future and that's it <laughs> he's <laughs> just fallen up right because yeah. part one is not like about like how he it's it's uh by what means he acquired the style and title but that yeah. does not imply that the opposite <laughs> of misfortune and disaster yeah. necessarily <laughs> i just like that he blanks i just like <clears throat> especially when he um, is it the Germans, the other side of the the mm-hmm. army that they're on, and he kind of goes back and they're having a meal together? And even when they're like arrest this man, he's like, "No, I'm taking this note to see this <laughs> yeah. to see this general." They're like, "He's been dead for six months, <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's still it, so that, adamant." And then it's like, "Oh, you can't put me in prison. I'm enlisting." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh dear. Um. I'm sorry if you guys have points <laughs> that you're trying to make, and if I'm taking them, taking this off. No, not at because, all. Because <clears throat> uh, just in rewatching this, because I I watched it again yesterday, and I haven't. It's been a while since I've seen any of Kubrick's films. I, it's been a, a minute since I've watched any any of them, and I was reminded of how great, like the. Uh, the small supporting characters often are in Kubrick's movies based almost entirely on the casting of them. And like the, the captain that has, that he has to compete with the, the affection for his cousin, uh, <laughs> that actor who I'm going to get his name wrong. Captain Gro Is that Godfrey Quigley? Is that who that is? Or is that, is that the guy who's friend? That might be the guy who's friendly with him. Um, Oh God! Now maybe that is him. Okay, I don't. I don't know the actor. I'm gonna get him wrong. 
<coughs> but he has just this relentless sort of cartoon. He's like a cartoon British villain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in his delivery, in his even the way his face looks, you know. <laughs> And, and the whole film is peppered with those characters. I mean, mm-hmm. even Lord Bullington is just this, like, uh, obviously the actor who plays Bullington becomes Kub- one of Kubrick's, like, lackeys after this. Yeah. One of his assistants. But that's his first and first role. And I think the only other acting role he, that guy did was he's, he's in Eyes Wide Shut with a mask over his face. Yeah. And, but he is such an actor on where I'm just like, where did you find this guy? Because he's yeah. so, like, it that uh, he's very good at making Bullington this such a he's he's not likable either. He's no. such a like a twerp, you know. But you, you're kind of like, well, I mean, he's right to challenge Barry to a duel, and yeah, he's you got know a point. <laughs> his win. It, it you know when when he wins, it's kind of like okay, good on him, you know, now he's the yeah. one writing his mother's checks. Yeah, but justice has been done, I guess. He's <laughs> he's so good at making the character this this twerp that he is. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and all of the all of the officers, they're all like that. The, the Chevalier, who I think is the novelist from A Clockwork Orange, um, covered with all that, you know, victorian makeup or whatever oh really oh, okay. uh, yeah yeah um yeah he's the he's the novelist who you know yeah. gets victimized in a clockwork orange uh but again just these guys with like great voices and great faces yeah. that yeah. fill like, out I mean, the roles and and that helps make the whole movie so much memorable too yeah it's like philip stone as well i mean you know he's he's been popping up i mean he was in clockwork orange's dad um and then he pops mm. up again here and then he's obviously um is it grady in the yes. shining um he's just he's just got a face that yeah i know because we've seen him a lot but you just recognize him you know um yeah. as me as brendan and i were talking about earlier when i did a rewatch of the indiana, indiana jones films he's in mm. temple of doom oh, and yeah. i was like kubrick's using him again and i was yeah. like wait a minute this isn't a kubrick film <laughs> but my I, mind I was just so I did notice uh, because I've I've seen, I you know I mentioned that this this might be my favorite Kubrick movie. I, I don't know. It, it's hard to say, but it's it's like a part of that might be become it's this one of my least seen, and I really enjoy watching it and and kind of discovering new things in it every time yeah. I watch it. Whereas some of the other films I've seen The Shining so many times. Yeah. That it it does kind of play like beats for me where it's sort of like oh I know what happened you know I know I, yeah. I don't know if there's more secrets or just more little details that will unravel for in that film for me, yeah. um, but I I've seen The Shining enough to to hear a line in Barry Lyndon on my most recent watch where I was like they say that in The Shining too, and it's the phrase all the best people. It's the guy who, when he's when he's trying to like get a title, and the guy yeah. is saying like the the you know the people in his company is they might not be the smartest or whatever, but the all the best people, and that's what the manager at the Overlook says about guests who stay there. So mm-hmm. now I'm just like, is that is that a phrase from the novel Barry Lyndon, or did Kubrick just make yeah. that up? And is he referencing himself, or is he just right. being repetitive? But it I stuck mean- out to me. 
I mean, we've talked about this. I don't think anything is inconsequential in a Kubrick right, film. Yeah. I don't think there's anything there by mistake. Right. So I'm sure, yeah. you know, maybe it's just more for him to think yes. about the, the clientele that would be at this hotel would be, you know, people of a higher status, potentially. Right. You know, and he, he just links that to people trying to get a title in 1777 England or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a class class ascension. That's like a, a thing that seems to be going on here, right? Like that's what's happening in this movie. But now I'm thinking of The Shining too, and I won't yeah. steal your conversations for next week. But you know, the the, the well, guests at The Shining are the people with titles. You know, well, Club the, low, the, the lowly, you know, winter yeah. caretaker is the. Your Barry Lyndon type, who yeah. you know, maybe he right. can, he's he, he he gets to walk around in the the you know the room and pretend. Um, yeah, but I mean, Clockwork Orange, you know, class as well. Alex doesn't; mm-hmm. he's not you know necessarily in a great place. You know, when yeah. we see the the apartment block that he lives in, you know, there's debris right. everywhere, and the doors, the lift's broken. You know, and that's probably. But he's also not homeless. He's not and homeless. He terrorizes homeless yeah. people. Well, it's mm-hmm. always that one step up, isn't it? It's like yeah. Right, yeah. he's terrorizing the people below him. He gets terrorized right. by the people above him. Right. You know, yeah. he gets caught when he attacks someone from a higher social class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that this movie also kind of has a similar like progression to that film, right? It's been a while since I've seen Clockwork Orange, but there's kind of that like there's a rise and fall of these characters. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. a there's a turning point where they've they've done nothing but but you know, revealed themselves as dirt bags, and then mm. there's the second half where um, maybe there's some kind of redemption, or not that Barry Lyndon Barry doesn't have this redemption, but there is this like now I'm a still, now yeah. I'm a man of of culture, you know. Because we yeah. talked about this, Brandon, last week with Alex. Is like <coughs> you don't like him, but you're still mm-hmm. rooting for him to yeah, you know, to escape these confines, yeah, and get better. And it's the same with Barry, you know, towards the end. So like, I don't want you to die. I just exactly, yeah. Want you to kind of, you know, <laughs> get you comeuppance a little bit. I, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I was ever rooting for Barry as much as I was, uh, and I don't know how much this has to do with Ryan O'Neill's performance. Um, but I, I want to know what happened to him. Whether or not I was rooting for him, I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> but like. Yeah. I, it, but there's a point where you're like, I gotta, I gotta see what happens to this guy next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he's yeah. just on like such a like every every. I mean, for a three hour movie, it's 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 got so many landscape changes and mm-hmm. twists in the story to yeah. where you really don't know where it's going next. Right. It, it's just interesting because yeah, like you know that. Before it has a chance to even start to get boring, it it switches it up. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, he's even robbed in the most gentlemanly way possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, Lewis was talking earlier about Indiana Jones and another Kubrick and Indiana Jones crossover that I found out about this. Was the guy that's in the that fights him in the you know that when he's like bickering with him early on when he joins 
the military and then mm-hmm. um they have like a a fist fight yeah uh, mm-hmm. which is a mm-hmm. great scene i mean when that yeah. whole scene started i was like oh man don't fight this guy like this <laughs> yeah. guy is gonna whoop your ass well like, and, and it's... he's a big built dude he's got this huge gash yeah. in his arm like he's got a chunk of meat out of his arm well it's I, like i just love how how brash barry is where the guy is like ask him about his wife <laughs> and he's like like ad-libbing like i heard you i don't remember what the character is mrs potter or whatever why did you ignore her when she came to the camp <laughs> you know like <laughs> like without hesitation yeah so i was uh yeah i mean that whole scene is great and then like you know they they have this you know fight and then at that point i'm kind of I'm really rooting for Barry at that point because yeah. you're like, oh, he's kind of a badass. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> he just he just kicks this guy's ass. He's a good fighter. Um, and then, yeah. So I was like, who who is this guy that he fights? And he is in all three Indiana Jones films. <laughs> okay. Uh, he plays <laughs> the big guy that Indy fights by the airplane, and then he like he gets like chopped up in the mm-hmm. um, yeah. by the propeller. And then he plays the guy that he fights on the conveyor belt in Temple of Doom. Okay. And then his like cloth gets caught and he gets, you know, taken under yeah. the thing and gets squashed. Yeah. And I'm not sure who he, he I mean, he's credited as in that he's in um Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I'm not exactly sure. I mean I found a picture, but I can't place I don't really remember. I gotta rewatch that movie you mean, uh, and see yeah. if I can find him. Not Raiders. Oh, I mean, he's also in Last Crusade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just thought that was that was cool that Spielberg was like, okay, he's got to fight this guy from Barry Lyndon, Mm -hmm. and then he was so good that he's like, okay, we're gonna make this a thing where he fights him in every movie. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, the uh, in Clockwork Orange, the 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 author is in the second half of the movie. His like personal assistant who like carries his wheelchair yeah yeah that's that's uh david prouse that's darth vader oh shoot oh, wow yeah that's the guy in the darth vader suit oh my god <laughs> i did not know that go. that's amazing that's cool so yeah, i mean he's got, i guess like short shorts on yeah and he's, like yeah. super muscular yes so i mean i guess these guys are stunt guys i assume yeah probably yeah 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 and i mean all three of those guys were friends i mean mm-hmm Lucas Spielberg Kubrick, you know, they're all they're all also into technology and pushing the, yeah, you know, right. They they're calling each other up and being like, "How did you do this in this movie? <laughs> and what? Who did? You, who are your people?" Kubrick's like, "None of your business." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's probably Kubrick sending them faxes at three o'clock in the yeah. morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um. What else is this? It any any other tidbits? Uh, well, apparently, I guess when he was doing a lot of his research was done when he was trying to make Napoleon. You know, right. uh, uh, yeah. so he kind of had a lot of the research taken care of when he decided that this was going to be the next film. Um, but apparently, he had all these like art books, and he would when he he would flip through them and when he saw a painting like a you know picture of a painting that he was like oh i want to use that he would rip the the, the 
rip it out of the book so that he could then file it away. And he felt really guilty, apparently, about destroying these books this way. And I guess all these books are like not in print anymore. I mean, I mean, you can still uh, find yeah. you can still find books of, you know, what is it, Hogarth? The the all these <laughs> painters, you can still find their books. But he was just like, apparently felt very like uh, every tear, like oh, I shouldn't be doing this. I feel terrible about you know ripping up these books. But he's finding the pictures that I'm like oh, that's a shot, you know, and filing it right. away. Yeah. So. I don't know. This I think this does set um I once had a friend ask me if if there was like a specific genre or a subgenre type of film that I am just totally like adverse to ever seeing. And I have a real dislike overall of historical costume dramas. Um mm. at least the ones made within like the last 30 to 40 years because those mostly seem to feel like movies that are designed to win an Academy Award for right. costumes and maybe acting. <clears throat> and <clears throat> this is a movie that probably like sets the standard for exceptions for me, you know, yeah. as far as those go, because I love this movie. And then I think of movies that, fit in that same obviously it's a very broad brush historical costume drama but you mentioned Amadeus earlier Louise. I love that yeah. movie and there is definitely it definitely feels like it has some of Barry Lyndon in its DNA and then recently a few years ago there was a movie called The Favorite which mm -hmm. yeah. uh, like that has stuff that feels like ripped straight out of Barry Lyndon yeah. in a good way like like that is a film that it does the same thing with humor and and weirdness and some great sets and cinematography and you know so it, it's like this has set the bar of that kind of movie for me because i'm almost going to just like you know stick my fingers in my ears and shut my eyes if a, a historical <laughs> costume drama comes out because it, it's usually i want nothing to do with it yeah <clears throat> but every so often you get ones that are these I, I i mean obviously the story has, a, has a, a lot to do with it a lot of historical dramas are just like this king or this queen or this prince yeah you know and and that's not particularly interesting to me but you know the story in the favorite with a queen who has these two women and so on and so forth that's interesting amadeus that's interesting yeah. it helps that they aren't necessarily trying to be accurate representations of history that might also play a part into it yeah 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 i really like the favorite too i hadn't thought about that while watching it yeah i i, I i'd like to see it again sometime because um, yeah. <clears throat> i only i think i only saw it once but uh, yeah definitely very very london-esque in its execution yeah I've got two little tidbits that I just want to add before we start wrapping up. I mean, Kubrick was very stressed throughout this and started to get rushes on his hands towards mm. the end of production because it was just going on for so long and, you know, all the work that he had done. Um, and there's a great story from the production designers about what it was like working with Kubrick um, where they had they 
basically kept <clears throat> going to him and trying to bother him about questions they had. And he kind of kept trying to deflect it, wasn't that interested. Mm-hmm. And they were like, is is there any way that we can just get your like response to these questions? What do we need to do? And he's like, okay, you can ring a bell. If you need my help, we can <laughs> ring a bell. Um, and they're like, okay, we're going to get a bell. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're going to test every bell and buzzer possible until we find one that isn't irritating to me. And they said oh that they started God. like importing different kinds of bells and buzzers. And in the end, they were like, oh, forget it. I can't be like, this is ridiculous. I can't be bothered. So they just stopped asking him. And he, like, <laughs> he kind of got what he wanted because um, he yeah. didn't want to be bothered while making it. But it also just shows like not, there was nothing that could just be like grabbed. Simple. It was like, it had to, yeah, exactly. It had to be exactly the way he wanted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it must have been hell <laughs> trying to work. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I with, I don't want to disparage um, Ryan O'Neill uh, with slander <coughs> any further than I already have, but I do think it's, it. fa- <laughs> uh, it's fascinating that before this he had Love Story in 1970, which was the highest grossing movie of 1970. Got an Oscar nomination for it. It's also for a number of years was one of the highest grossing films of all time, even adjusted for inflation, which is just weird. Then he does two Bogdanovich movies. What's yeah. up doc, which I love me too. Uh, and paper moon. And then he does this and he says he credits Barry Lyndon with basically ruining his career. This career never recovered from Barry Lyndon. Um, because he did a Walter Hill movie after this, The Driver, and he did for, keep doing some Bogdanovich films, but like, yeah, he his his star just completely like you know, what do they call when a star explodes and extinct? It's extinct. Is that what it's called? Yeah, just yeah. His star just was extinct. Fizzled out. Yeah, fizzled out. Yeah, um, but he did his youngest. He has four children. His youngest son, he named Redmond. I have no yeah. idea if that's a reference yeah. to this. It's got I mean, to be, right? Be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 it feels like it has to be, but... <clears throat> so That's the son that he hates. My son is I... called Barry Lyndon. It's no <laughs> reference to the film I was in. <laughs> uh, my understanding is that Ryan O'Neill does not have a very good relationships with any of his children, but hmm. we don't want uh, this to well. be a... I'll cut that part out. A, scan- a sc- <laughs> scandal sheet. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, that, I would like... be surprised if anyone <clears throat> turned, you know, an hour and 30 minutes into our Barry Lyndon episode, you know, got that far into it and then turned, you know, what what we said into a scandal. I dare you to do it. Well, you know. Anybody that's made it this far. As I understand <laughs> it, he is a, Ryan O'Neill is a difficult, was a difficult actor to work with, a difficult person in life on set. Um, yeah. So maybe matching him with a difficult to deal with director like Stanley Kubrick was uh, yeah. a bad mixture. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Well, the movie turned out good. Yeah, <laughs> it did. And and I, I mean, if if Ryan O'Neill is like allegedly an unlikable guy in real life, he does a great job in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, 
I mean, uh, Barry is Redmond Barry is a scoundrel that you enjoy watching his scoundrelly scoundrel yeah. scoundrel scoundrel scoundrelings. Yeah. <laughs> did you get both of your tidbits out, Lewis? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think it's time for us to guess what we all rated the film. I think. Yeah. Zach rated it a heart. I, I think <laughs> that, Zach rated it a heart too. Yeah. <laughs> I did. Uh, Lewis, I think you rated it a four and a half. Okay. I think you rated it a four. All right. What do you Be- think, Zach? I'm going to say four for both of you. All right. It was four for me. It was four for me as well. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) I thought maybe it was a little higher. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, when you do, when do you do the rankings? You guys aren't doing separate rankings. You're sort of, no, we're doing like an overall, we're trying to, yeah, come to a compromise. Yeah. It's fascinating. Interesting. Um, yeah, so right now it's 2001 Space Odyssey at number one, then Pass of Glory, then Doctor Strangelove, Clockwork Orange, The Killing, Killer's Kiss, Lolita, Spartacus, and Fear and Desire at the bottom. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is this is getting really hard every week. Yeah, I think... Because <laughs> none of these movies are necessarily bad. No. With no. the exception of, like, Fear and Desire. But, like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. How do you rate them against each other? I'm putting it now in my head of like, which if I was putting these like the films together in the ranking, which one would I want to watch again? You know, and that's kind of like right now. I know that would change over time. Personally, I would put this above Clockwork Orange. Uh huh. I think it's better than Clockwork Orange. Okay. Um but you wouldn't put it above Doctor Strange Love? No. No. No, I wouldn't. I feel like I I feel like Clockwork Orange is better. Okay. Um but yeah, it's 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 a tough call. Yeah. Um I feel like we I mean, is it would you put it between Clockwork Orange and The Killing? I feel like that's where I naturally want to put it. Okay. Right now. Yeah. I mean, I would be happy with that. I feel like I've kind of okay. influenced You've won you a lot. more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got uh, a lot of wins on this list. <laughs> I would be ha- I mean, I'd be fine with that, you know. Okay. All right. Cool. I think that's the easiest one we've done. <laughs> and is this I mean, would you say this is your favorite Kubrick that I know that we've kind of like talked about it a lot? Yeah, I mean, it kind of in the last few years that, yeah. uh, I mean, for me, like, I can't rank films. Like, if you're talking about two films, I, I can usually be like, oh, that's, I, like, I like this one more than the other one. But mm. once you start getting into someone like Stanley Kubrick, um, <laughs> yeah. and there, are many, there are many filmmakers and writers and artists who kind of have the same thing where I'm just like, there are... 
you know, almost all of the body of work is great, where uh, it, ranking becomes almost immaterial because my favorite Kubrick film will be different five years from now. Yeah. And it will just be kind of like where I'm and same with my favorite movie. It'll be wherever I'm at in life and whatever I've been watching. As I said, this is one of my least watched ones. So like I, when I was a teenager, I watched 2001 and Dr. Strangelove and a clockwork orange a lot. And yeah. I still like watching those movies, but <clears throat> um, I, I couldn't, quote the along with the you know i can well not 2001 but you know i i i know the beats of the film so well um so a couple years ago i was watching this and kind of felt like this might be the best one and maybe i felt that way because it was just fresh to me where yeah <clears throat> every time i watch it i'm kind of rediscovering new things about it <clears throat> yeah and it was that way with Previous, with other Kubrick films before, but less so as I get older or watch them more, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's weird because I almost want to say, like, ranking Kubrick or naming your favorite Kubrick feels like it should come down to, like, well, are you, like, a horror person or a sci-fi person? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And and it's like, well, like I said, I'm, I'm sort of not a fan of historical costume dramas, and yet the yeah. historical costume drama has kind of found its way into my favorite spot, you know, of these yeah. movies. So. Sp speaking of which, one of the top uh, reviews on Letterboxd is from Silent Dawn, and they said, uh, showed this to my mom today. She thinks 2001 A Space Odyssey is the most boring film of all time. She walks out of A Clockwork Orange, and she, see and she, ne she never ceases to complain about every aspect in Dr. Strangelove. And yet she was utterly entranced for every second of Barry Lyndon laughing and crying along with the ravishing imagery and the remarkable storytelling. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a Stanley Kubrick film for everyone. Excellently put. Yeah. Yeah. And you should follow Silent Dawn. I follow him. He's a good oh, you do? He's a good okay, writer. Cool. He's a very good writer. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Doing it right now. Um Talking of Kubrick films for everyone, though, Brendan, what are we watching next week? Next week, Lewis, we are watching The Shining from 1980. This is the Get Kubrick ready. film for me. <laughs> so I'm excited. Should watch that yes. Room 237 for, um, yes. for extra credit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the longer that that film Room Two Thirty Seven goes on, the more my eyes roll because they. I yeah. feel like they start off like with believable things, and then it's like <laughs> my my final just gets ridiculous. my final consensus is they're all correct. Yeah, <laughs> they're all correct. That's what makes yeah. The Shining so great. Films are subjective, exactly. So you can take whatever you want from this film, exactly. <laughs> Well, I think that brings us to the end of the show, everybody. Uh, of course, you can find us on all the social medias at Film Church Radio, um, or you can follow us individually on Letterboxd at Selman Scope and at Walker Lewis 3007 to keep up with what we've been watching and what we've been rating things and, you know, just little extra reviews on there. Um, 
Please keep up with us on all good podcast platforms and on YouTube as well. And let us know what we should watch in the future. Should we do another director deep dive? And who should we do it on? With that, I think there's only one thing left to say. Barry had his faults. But none could say of him that he was not a good and tender father. He loved his son with blind impartiality. He denied the boy nothing. It is impossible to convey what high hopes Barry had for young Brian, or how he indulged in a thousand fond anticipations of the boy's future success and the figure in the world. But fate had determined that Barry should leave none of his race behind him, that he should finish his life poor, lonely, and childless. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. So sad. <laughs> yeah. so, can I stop recording? Um, sure. Or do you, amen. Or do you want to catch the Amen. Oh, amen. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Get Caught me out of, of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>